You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. When there's something wonderful to be done, if you're not right there with me, then get out of the way. Most people would not know who Jeremiah Tower is. He was on the front of magazines. He was known all over Europe. We hadn't seen his kind before. He was a natural. A superstar. And this was a chef. He certainly is considered a father of the American cuisine. We should know who changed the world. We should know their names. 1972, Jeremiah Tower walks into Chez Panisse. It was Alice Waters' little dream restaurant. The first thing they did is celebrate local ingredients. I wrote the menu, the California Regional Dinner. It exploded. Complete reevaluation of not just American food and ingredients, but food. Then all hell broke loose. <laughs> Alice showed me the first book, the Chez Panisse cookbook, and she had taken all the dinners I had dreamed up, written the menus for, and cooked, and said that she did it. I'm not coming back. He became something bigger. Jeremiah at Stars defined what a modern American restaurant could be. It was, at one point, arguably the best in the world. It was just odd that he burned so bright and then just disappeared. He never made contact again. I don't even think any of us knew for sure what had happened. All of a sudden, there was a tweet from the New York Times saying Jeremiah Tower announced his new chef at Tavern on the Green. My first reaction was, holy... Here's a guy who's been out of the profession for 15 years. Just seemed like something you'd see in a movie. He's got ranks of critics waiting to ambush him. Look at that. That's inexcusable. He has no clue what he's doing. These look tired. They're horrible. There's clearly unfinished business. Do I think that it's going to be a home run? <sighs> this will never work. If anything is worth doing, it's worth doing in style and on your own terms. And nobody else's. Hey folks, welcome to The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking to director Lydia Tanaglia about the recent documentary, Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent. It is a chef documentary about Jeremiah Tower. If you are into chef liberties, is that a real word? But if you're into that, celebrity chefs, I suppose that's a little bit better. Uh, and just cooking and the joy of life in general, you will definitely want to check out this documentary. It is currently making the rounds. It played at a few festivals and is now opening here and there around the country. So check for local listings, as they say. And you can find out more over at the website, projection-booth.com. Let's go ahead and roll that interview and please enjoy. Obviously, I want to focus in on the new film, but if you're okay, I'd like to ask you a little bit of your background because it seems like you've got a pretty interesting story to tell. Yeah. I've been working in the industry for, I don't know, 20 years or so, and I started out as an editor. I was working for other companies, editing shows, actually primarily kind of medical documentaries, television series. There was like a whole slew back in the late 90s, one was called, you know, Trauma Life in the ER, then there was spinoffs from that called Paramedics, and then Maternity Ward, and, um, you know, uh Lifeline. It was a whole slew of shows, and I started out working on those um, as an editor. And then, 
you know, it was during a time when, you know, production companies and these very small format cameras were coming into play. And so a lot of editors stepped up and raised their hand and said, well, you know, I can go out and shoot and produce that material too in the field and come back and edit my own piece. So I was sort of given the opportunity to do that. And I did that for a while, kind of moved my way up the ladder in that genre of programming for other production companies. I spent a lot of time in emergency rooms, in operating rooms, riding around the back of ambulances. <laughs> it was basically, and actually I'm the daughter of a doctor, so very familiar with the whole medical universe, but you know, this gave me a very intimate close-up picture of, you know, really what goes on in these these rooms in a hospital all over the country. And I did that for a while. As it turns out, when you've stuck to one kind of genre of, of storytelling for a while, particularly one as aggressive and uh, bloody and, um, you know, sometimes more often than not tragic, I just needed to break out of that and, and change a pace. And so I had read Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential and thought it was very laugh-out-loud funny and I had read somewhere that he was planning on doing a follow-up book to that one called The Cook's Tour, where he wanted to travel around the world and kind of experience the way other cultures eat, since he had never traveled much. And maybe it was just really prompted by my desire for a change of pace, but I called him and I said, um, you know, I'm a producer and um, would you ever consider wanting to do a demo? You know, they're called sizzle reels or, or demo tape basically talking about the concept of a cook's tour and what you'd want to do. And he was like, at that time, he was really, you know, he was nobody other than he had written this incredible kind of break out of the box book that made a lot of noise. And, you know, people were really looking at him for his writing. And so he wasn't really engaged too much in, you know, television, you know, the television universe. So he was very open. I went up there and I met him in person he was still in his chef white, still working in a kitchen. We talked at the bar of the restaurant that he was at at the time. He was executive chef, really just running the kitchen of this place, uh, Leal, that was on Park Avenue and 27th. I walked into the restaurant. He stood up. He's very tall, you know, and that was my first, the first thought that went through my head is this guy is really fucking tall and how are we going to shoot him? And, you know, we're going to, we're going to end up with these small format cameras. We're going to end up looking up his nose a lot and, you know, blah, blah, blah. These are the thoughts that were running through my head. And we just sat down, we talked and, um, he was open to the idea of shooting a, a demo in the restaurant. And, um, me and my, at the time, he was my associate. We eventually became married, but Chris Collins, uh, with whom I eventually started 0.0 production, we were working together. We both shot this. We took two cameras up there, me and him. We shot this demo. It was 10 minutes long. I edited it together, and then we went to Food Network. We figured, well, this has a lot to do with food, and, you know, nobody does this nowadays, but Food Network bought a series, you know, right out of the gate, 23-part series. And we were kind of off to their races at that point, me and Chris. And we had both worked in these kind of small format cameras, sort of in, in emergency rooms, really kind of intimate settings where you're trying to be unobtrusive and really document people in a very intimate way. And that whole style of shooting like really served us well when we took to the road with Bourdain for the first time. Bourdain had not, he had not done any television. He had certainly not done this kind of television where the, the expectation was 
with a very kind of observational type of conceit. Um, where we'd be following him around and, and he would really be the sort of POV, the driving eyes and ears, you know, for the audience. And it took us a beat. Really, it was just the three of us in the field. Me, Chris Collins, Anthony Bourdain went to, um, Tokyo first, you know, very kind of strict culture with a lot of etiquette. And you know, I think Tony felt very awkward at that time. Didn't really, he suddenly had two cameras trained on him and a very sort of proper, type of culture with a lot of protocol. And it was very, very awkward and uncomfortable, like for all of us. Um, and I, I admittedly was very, very concerned <laughs> that we were off on the wrong foot. But then somehow the three of us found our groove when we hit the next location. Because at that, that, on that particular shoot, we went out on five locations all in one shot. We were in Omnix week. And it was Vietnam. You know, Bourdain just really kind of like plugged in at that point because he had so many cultural references, so many touchstones. He's an avid reader. He's an unbelievable film buff, encyclopedic retention. And he just suddenly had all these incredible frames of reference and his energy just really came alive. And all three of us started to sort of play at that point with the format of the show which was, you know, it's really derived, like all of Bourdain's series from Cook's Tour to New Reservations and eventually what we're doing now with Parts Unknown, they're all derived from this sort of starting point of some kind of reference, whether it be literary or film or, you know, political or there's a there's a reference point that's kind of the flower for that episode and for all the ideas. That format was really established then. And again, I think working with those small format cameras at that time allowed us this kind of level of intimacy and access into people's homes, into these tiny kitchens in the middle of nowhere, where we started to shoot that kind of uh, food travel television in a very unique way. Man many people now call that Cook's Tour series genre busting and genre defining. And certainly what, you know, we've been able to do with Bourdain over the last 17 years has really kind of followed that same pattern because it's, I think the style of shooting, the style of storytelling, the fact that it's really being told from a very, very strong, very intimate point of view, these were all things that were never applied to that genre of food television before. And it, it really kind of took off. And that was, that was honestly the start of so many things for me. I mean, Chris and I got married. We started this company 0, 0.0 together, you know, we really started our long, very long journey with Bourdain. We've been working together for 17 years and we were really able to sort of build up our company, you know, around this kind of um, character driven, beautifully shot, you know, genre busting uh, type of storytelling. And we've, you know, we've done that now in a, in a variety of different shows. Right, at, right now, for example, we have seven different series that are running some, some, you know, certainly the one with Bourdain, one that he's an executive producer on. And then we have, you know, other series that he's, he's not involved with at all. We have about 150 people here working now. That's kind of like my origin story. <laughs> my husband, Chris, my, my, you know, my husband, Chris and I share an office. We are in a, a, a standing desk and we face each other. We joke that our computers are kind of getting bigger and bigger every year. So we <laughs> we started out with laptops, and now we have like enormous desktops. So we have some coverage away from each other. But you know, we share an office, and we you know we 
kind of share a vision for this company that is really about, you know, trying to produce stories with integrity and like beautiful vision. Well, what was that like to switch from that intense medical drama, that micro, uh, as you're talking about, to going out in the world? I mean, you guys have traveled all over the place. That is one of the best things about these Bourdain shows is that you guys go every place. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it was unbelievably wonderful to sort of unburden myself from having to look at, you know, brain surgery and amputation and open heart surgery. And believe me, you know, you look back at that time, you're like, how the hell did anyone allow us into an emergency room? Those, all those laws shooting those shows have changed since then. But at the time, you know, I was, a television producer, and I was allowed to follow, you know, cases into emergency rooms and watch people's, you know, skulls get sawed open for brain surgery. It's remarkable when I think back at that. And so I, you know, in some ways, it was it was a very soul-crushing experience. You're surrounded by a lot of frightened people, a lot of trauma. That part of it, I think was the most pressing, emotionally pressing part. But the 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 style of shooting, the idea of the the construct, the paradigm of shooting, basically taking these very small format cameras at the time and being able to get into because of your unobtrusiveness, get into somebody's personal space. That style of shooting, which is what we were trained in, both Chris and I. We were able to take and translate, you know, almost impose on this new world that we were we were setting out into, you know, with with Bourdain. So when we were suddenly upriver in the Mekong and ended up, you know, at this tiny little shack with a duck farmer and his whole family, and you know, somebody's playing an electric guitar that they found. We adopted the same kind of unobtrusive stance. Like we were there and we sort of made ourselves part of the scene. You make people feel comfortable. The camera just sort of becomes an extension of your, your engagement with them. And that was the same. So I, I learned a lot. I guess all this to say that I learned a tremendous amount working on those medical shows. And that style of shooting, that style of storytelling, that sort of intimacy, we were able to kind of translate into this world of, of food and travel, you know, really kind of seen through the eyes of somebody who was experiencing the world for the first time, because at the time, again, Bourdain had not traveled much at all. I truly appreciate that experience that I had, and that was several years of working on every medical drama out there. I appreciate what I learned there, and I think it it um, it helped in some ways define this kind of new construct, you know, for for food travel television. So there, I don't know. I draw a parallel, you know, between the two because I think they're they're related to each other in many ways. I have to tell you that my wife was a huge fan of Trauma Life in the ER, but oh, yeah. I could not watch it. There was one where there was a an X-ray of a guy's head, and he had like a spike yeah, with, in this no, head. No, it was a Bowie knife, actually. Yeah, he had gotten into a fight, and somebody took a Bowie knife, and they shoved it right on top of his head, and it went straight through, but it somehow missed, somehow miraculously missed every major artery. He got wheeled into the emergency room, awake, talking, 
with the with the handle of a it was like a you know six inch Bowie knife shoved into his he- head up to the handle, and you know they rushed him into surgery and they were able to remove it and he you know he left there intact and you know to this day everyone one of those cases that you know only you just wonder who was looking out for this guy <laughs> that that this happened to him you know it was a fascinating show to work on you know four years in though I, I had I had had enough I'm like I've got to do something else or I'm gonna my soul is going to just be crushed before you met Bourdain had you ever entered into that that world of food that he was kind of your entree into no no, that was really the first foray into that uh, that whole new universe. I mean, I, again, I I worked on, um, I, like I worked on other shows. Like um, I had worked on this one documentary about surfers in Santa Cruz. So I spent six weeks with these surfers. That was part of a TLC series too, um, called America. Um, I forgot what it's called. Like America Undercover, America. You know, on the underbell, I can't remember the name of the show, but one of the one of the ten part series was about surfers. Oh, subcultures! They were subcultures. So surfers was a subculture, and you know, I'd done a thing about that. I'd done a thing about an architect. I'd worked on a lot of other things prior to this long run in the medical stuff. But then once I landed at this company, New York Times Television, I you know I I ended up staying there for for some time as an editor and then as a producer editor and then I was a series producer and then I became an executive producer so I worked on a lot of these type shows so I had not done anything around food as I told you I I just I went up there and I approached him and I don't know what I was thinking other than I got to try something new here or at least pitch something new because this is um you know that they were lining up another medical series for me and I I need, I need to switch, change of pace. When you're on these cooking shows and, cause he's always eating stuff, do you ever get a taste of what he's working, what he's doing, what he's eating? You know, especially some of these cuisines where he is being served stuff. Like one of my favorite episodes, and I can't remember which version of the show it was, but when you guys went out to like the desert and they were, what was it? Like a, a sheep in a big pit that was yeah. being cooked or a goat? Yeah, I mean, I you know I traveled for the first six seven years of the of the series when it was cook tour and then also no reservations and then my company with with Chris Collins zero point zero started to grow started to get other series on board and so I um, you know I traveled less and less for the series as it progressed we have this you know incredible crew of people who've been with the show now for probably ten fifteen years. And so they go out on these respective things. In the years that I did travel with him, though, I, um, you know, I tried everything he tried. So, you know, snake and worms and insects. And there was one thing that I wouldn't try, which was, you know, um, the monk, you know, people were offered monkey at one point and nobody wanted to try that. This is something about eating primates that <laughs> just doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, I tried everything that he tried. He he would then also be, you know, as his popularity grew, people would, you know, flood his dinner table with lots of things that he hadn't ordered. So, you know, the the, the crew, and again, it's was, it was a, it was a very small crew. We got to basically, you know, finish all the leftovers, which were quite substantial. So 
you know, the the crew is pretty e- eating pretty well out there. I, I I know that from experience. You do get to try everything, you know, pretty much everywhere. And that that's you know a unique, an incredibly unique part of this particular job is you know having access to all these people and all these cultures in very intimate settings. You know, their food is really a reflection of themselves. It's their offering to you. You know, it's a representation of who they are. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to, like, experience people in that way. Well, how did the Jeremiah Tower Project come about? I've been working now, again, in food television for 17 years. We have another series called The Mind of a Chef, which we're now in season five or six now. It's on Netflix. So, you know, have access to basically every chef around the world, you know, know a lot of different characters in the food world. I worked on another documentary about 10 years ago with Ruth Reichel, who's the former uh, editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. She had written these three books. So I'd, you know, done three one hours on her based on those stories. So again, a lot, know a lot of players, a lot of people in the food world. And Bourdain read Jeremiah Tower's memoirs called California Dish. It actually just got re-released. It's called Start the Fire. Really great read. It's an incredible read. Really fun. And you're reading this thing and you're like, well, hold on a second. He was at Chez Panisse in 1971, basically put that place on the map. Chez Panisse is one of the most famous restaurants in the United States. And he was there at basically at its inception. It was about 15 months old when he arrived at, at the doorstep and he really put this amazing imprint on it and it, it took off on a national level. He then went on to renovate three other restaurants in between Balboa Cafe, Santa Fe Grill. This is all on the West Coast. He then goes on to, to start his own restaurant called Stars, which for all intents and purposes, everyone credits as being the first of its kind. Really the kind of first place, as you see in the film, where chef and restaurateur, you know, become inextricably linked, where chef really comes forward into the dining room and people want to see, you know, who that is and and be up and rub elbows with him, where, you know, chef becomes basically a celebrity. And the restaurant itself, the construct of the restaurant, he also was unbelievably innovative at. And so all of these things, I'm sitting here working in food television for 20 years, have worked with all these different people, all these characters, know a hell of a lot about our journey, you know, as a, as a, uh, our, our culinary journey, you know, as a country. Yet I had never even heard of it, Jeremiah Tower, never heard of him, didn't even know who he was, no knowledge, his name never mentioned. And so when Bourdain brought the book in and he kind of tossed it on my deck, the desk and he, you know, he tossed the book on my desk and he said, you really need to read this. It's a really incredible story. And maybe there's a, maybe, maybe he would be a good subject for a mind of a chef, the series that we have. And so I really kind of read it from that perspective. You know, and as I'm reading it, I'm, again, I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, how come I've never heard of this guy? I know who Alice Waters is. She's, you know, wears the moniker godmother of the American food revolution. Chez Panisse is still standing, you know, 40, some odd years later, never heard of this guy. And so I, you know, started to dig around, started to do some research, started to read some articles. There's a really great article by John Birdsall called The Invincible Armor of Pleasure, Jeremiah Tower and the Invincible Armor of Pleasure, and just became very fascinated. And so 
pitched the idea of doing a, a feature film to CNN. And, you know, they were, they were in the midst of starting their documentary originals program and looking for projects. So Bourdain and I went in and we pitched this, this idea. And they were not convinced. They said, okay, it sounds like an interesting story, but what's he like on camera? Is there even an interesting central character there? And so I made it, I, I sought out Jeremiah Tower. He's living in this tiny town in Merida, Mexico, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And he, you know, the wind was blowing. He was obviously calling from some outdoor location near a beach. And I said, you know, would you ever be interested in, same thing I did with Bourdain. Would you ever be interested in appearing in a documentary? And he was kind of confused and surprised and like happily curious about why I was even calling him. He said, you know, whatever. Same thing. Same thing Bourdain said. Yeah, I guess. You know, sure, if you're interested. And I made an appointment to see him so I could cap, and at the end, the thought was I was going to just spend 30 minutes with him and try to give CNN a sampling of what he was like on camera. Instead, I ended up spending five hours with him shooting a really, shooting a really long interview. And that's when I really became fascinated and engaged. I mean, not only is he this very charismatic and enigmatic speaker, but you know, as we kind of dove into his life and what he had done in his career, it was clear there was a lot more there than just, you know, a biopic about an interesting chef. You know, this was for me, it sort of became a very interesting character study about an artist who had a vision and he kind of barreled forward and, and projected that vision, you know, at all costs, you know, both to, to great heights, great celebratory heights, and to, I'm not going to say tragic, but to falls as well. And what was evident was that every step of the way from his early childhood, you know, through his college years, through Chez Panisse, through Stars, through all of the kind of turmoil that followed that, he was someone who was driven more by his sense of curiosity and his, his, um, his desire to kind of project beauty and elegance onto the world than, than anything else. And, and that really was more fascinating than I made this restaurant and it was so great. It was what, what was all of the kind of psychological, emotional motivation, you know, that drove this guy to do what he did and why he did it and how he did it and why he kept going even when he had failures. And that was, that was what was interesting to me. And that, and it, you know, we took this year and a half long journey together and it was, um, it was really fascinating. I got to know him in a, I think a way that uh, most people don't. Well, it's such a well shaded portrayal of this person who does seem complicated. Always sounds like it might be a, a derogatory term, but he seems very complex. Let's say. Yeah. He's many things. He is artistic. He's brash. He's egotistical. He is um, clear about what he wants to say with his chosen medium of food and restaurant. He's funny as hell, um, vulnerable, although he doesn't like to show that side. There's a vulnerability there. And I was just curious to know, like, where did all that come from? You know, where, where did that emanate from? Like, who are you? Who, where did you come from? 
who brought you up? What were your formative experiences that lent to this sort of vision of, of how you saw the world? And that was what made him an interesting character to follow. It was not one note. It wasn't just the kind of biography of a, of a, you know, a chef who had an impact on the culinary landscape of the United States. It was about a person who, you know, was eccentric at times, um, but always, always curious and always sort of pushing forward with his sort of vision of beauty, uh, you know, on the world. I thought that, um, writer James Villas sent it, said it best. You know, he was always seeking ways to sort of push out vulgarity. And he, and, and in that comment, he meant the vulgarity of his, his upbringing, the vulgarity of people's lack of appreciation, the, the vulgarity sometimes of, of life. You know, he was trying to, um, kind of create this sort of, um, with stars, I think he was trying to create this vision of a place where people could be, um, protected from, you know, the vulgarity that was in the alleyway, the drugs and the, you know, all the crime. And, and he kind of created this world, this internal world that was quite beautiful. I have to say that I love your use of, well, two things, your recreations of the past. Those are shot so beautifully. And then the use of the archival footage. That archival footage is just amazing. How did you get your hands on that? Thank you for saying that. Because, you know, it's, it's funny. You go into a documentary and, and you go, you know, the whole notion of recreation immediately kind of makes you win because typically documentaries are not the most luxuriously funded endeavors in the world. And so you go, in, you go into recreation with a, you know, a sense of this could either really work or it could come off really cheesy, you know, and I definitely think, you know, some of the recreations were much stronger and more successful than, than others. But I think the point is that there was always, um, there was always a sense, I think, from the beginning of the film that I had to show the audience, you know, what Jeremiah's young life was like, those formative years, you know, with his family, traveling around the world, the loneliness and joy he felt simultaneously being left alone on ships in hotel rooms, the idea and the relationship he formed with food early on, almost as his constant companion you know, his, his relationship he formed with menus and old menus, almost as his kind of early storybooks. Those formative memories I felt were so important to bring to life and recreation felt like the best way to do so. And the reason why I say that is we did not know going into the film and did not have access to any of that archival material you just referenced. That material came to me very, very, very late in the process. Um, Jeremiah had mentioned that somebody in his family had taken home home movies on eight millimeter, but that that material was long gone, didn't exist anymore. And so we kind of gave up, you know, even looking for it because he, you know, he said, yeah, that I have no idea where it is and it got trashed and what have you. So we went into it with the idea that recreation was a way to kind of build out those early memories and shot all of those pieces and actually were pretty far along in an, in an edit when that archival material, <laughs> you know, emerged, literally emerged out of a dark room. I got a call from Jeremiah's nephew 
who said, you know, this is two-thirds of the way through the uh, post, the editing process. I get a call from his nephew saying, hi, I'm cleaning out my my mom's uh, basement. She's moving in with us. I'm, we're selling her house. And in the basement, in a closet, in a dark closet in the back, I found a box marked Tower Family Home Movies. There's a whole bunch of, um, you know, uh, metal containers in here of 8-millimeter film that are marked, you know, Young JT or, you know, Tower Family in Spain or, you know, uh, uh, JT and uh, John on the Queen Mary. And I was like, I, I nearly threw up. <laughs> at that point, you're like, holy shit, are you kidding me? And he's like, well, I don't know. You know, I know you're pretty far along in your process. I don't know if this is useful to you anymore. Anyway, had him immediately send the material. You know, we had to have it carefully transferred because it was, you know, 50, 60 years old, you know, footage. And there it was, like all of the anecdotes and all of the memories and all of the stories that Jeremiah told that we had tried to painstakingly build through recreation were suddenly there and corroborated by all that archival material. And that was pretty, that was a real giant pivot point in the process because at that point it became an exercise of how how do you marry together the recreation and the archival. And hopefully I think, you know, we achieved that. Some of that archival material is used as the backplate to some of that recreation material. And then we just try to, in editing, to kind of work these two things and weave these two things, you know, in and out with each other. Did he get to experience seeing those home movies again after all those years? We had our little skirmishes along the way where, you know, it was a process of him relinquishing control (laughs) of the storytelling process to me, which, you know, much to his credit, he was able to do. But we came to an agreement at one point. He said, I don't want to see anything. I trust you. I don't want to see what you're doing. And so he was not involved in any aspect of the um, post-process. I did bring him here to New York once so we could do some voiceover pieces in a, in a, in a, in a booth. Those pieces are pulled, by the way, from his own diaries, his own youthful diaries. So that wasn't stuff that was written for the film. That was stuff that was pulled from his own writing. Diaries that he kept from the age of like 12 to the, his early 30s, I think. So he came in once for that. Um, and but he had not seen the film, and uh, he came to New York about two days before the premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. And he, I said, Jeremiah, you've got to see the film. You can't watch it for the first time with an audience of you know 900 people. So I rented this small, I rented this small theater where we had done all the um, color correcting, um, and it was a big screen, and it was just he and I inside this kind of big screen room. And the film started, you know, the first thing you see is him wandering around those ruins. And the first line you hear is, you know, I have to stay away from other humans because somehow I'm not one. And he immediately turned his head and he looked at me with this, like, what the hell (laughs) have you gotten me into? And then it just, it proceeded to, or you know, it proceeded to uh, kind of increase in emotional intensity from there. He had no idea that I had gotten that archival footage. He had no idea that I had really contacted any of his friends from college. You know, so suddenly he's listening to, you know, a parade of people, you know, psychoanalyzing his life, people that he hadn't seen, you know, in over 20 years. He had 
really kind of left all these people behind when he left San Francisco. So it was it was a very very shocking rattling experience for him to watch the film for the first time and the film ended and he I I looked at him very tentatively and I said are you are you going to punch me in the face? <laughs> and he said I need to get out of here. I I don't know what to say. I need to just I need a moment to process that. And so I said, I understand completely. We left the theater. He immediately saw a bar across the street. He said, I think I'm good. I think I need a drink. <laughs> I said, okay. We went into the bar, sat at the, the bar, uh, at which point he proceeded to have three, you know, very strong cocktails in a row. Um, and I was just trying to read him at that point. And he said, I, Gonna, I'm gonna need a day or two to just process what I what I saw, and I just I just think he didn't know what to expect. He certainly knew what we had shot in Mexico. He knew what we shot at Tavern on the Green, but I don't think he knew how all those pieces were gonna come together. He hadn't seen any of the recreations. He didn't know that I had that archival material. So suddenly there's images of his mother and his father and his brother and his travels and him as a young boy, and it just it brought up all these memories for him and long story short I piled him into a cab and he went back to his hotel you know and then I didn't hear from him for a day and a half I was texting him calling him I even had the hotel go, I even had the hotel go and knock on his door at one point because I thought you know has he skipped town <laughs> has he killed himself I mean I what what is going on but he had gone out and he had taken these long walks he finally called me back a day and a half later he said, um, I think the film is brilliant. And he said, I, I'm, I just needed a moment to digest, you know, what I had seen. I didn't know what to expect. And I, I really, I really, you know, I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. That said, I think it took him at least another five, six, seven screenings to finally be able to sort of detach himself from you know, what was on screen and what was being said about him, you know, to just kind of position himself back into the seat as an audience member. And he told me that very recently in California. We just went on this whole press tour together when the film premiered in, in L.A. And one night right before, you know, the 10th, 11th screening of the film, he said, I, I, I finally have gotten to a place where I can watch the film from an audience's eyes. And it's really, really beautiful. And I really love it. He said, but it's taken me a moment to get here. So, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine like if somebody did a thing about your life and suddenly there are all your friends from, you know, college and your, your teachers and your associates and people who knew you when you had, you know, ran and, you know, just sitting there, you know, psychoanalyzing your life and your your highs and your lows and what you did right and what you did wrong. And it's like, it's traumatic, you know? Well, and there's so many painful memories in there. I mean, it still seems like he's pretty mad about the whole Alice Waters situation. I mean, I think all the people in the film really speak about it very well, which is there was a chemistry there and the chemistry was tension filled and it was love filled. And there was, there was love of mutual things and there was egos, and there was all of that, but you know, while you can talk about all the cons of that, the pros were that that chemistry is what caught, created, you know, that chemistry really created something 
very dynamic, you know, um, between him and her and the, and the sort of whole restaurant that was created. That, that said, I do think, you know, it was his very strong impression, you know, on that restaurant that brought it into the national consciousness. I mean, Chez Panisse was just a nondescript little cafe in Berkeley, California, you know, for 15 months before Jeremiah came along. And then I think really, as he put it, you know, it was, it was, you know, I was compelled by a desire to like actually have the restaurant make money. It had to make money. And how could we do that? You know, we had to get people in there and people who would sort of understand and appreciate the food. And so he tried to, you know, he built kind of certain, you know, week long menus and ex- explorations of regions. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that really got the momentum of Chez Panisse, you know, going. So, you know, I still think that there's an incredible love-hate relationship going on between the two of them. Um, but, I don't know, I think the film, hopefully, there's enough voices in there, you know, speaking about the relationship in, in a, in a, in a um, kind of equally critical and celebratory way that, you know, Alice is, is celebrated too for her part. For the record, I did reach out to her, but she did not want to, and I had an, I actually had an interview scheduled with her, but, you know, she decided at the last minute not to participate. So it was not for lack of trying. You said that you premiered at Tribeca. What was the response there and what's been the response so far as you've kind of shown this around? This response was unbelievably fantastic. There was a standing ovation when Jeremiah took to the stage. And then we did a, a really fantastic uh, Q&A that Charlie Rose mod- moderated. It was me and Bourdain and Jeremiah and Charlie Rose moderated the, the And it was a big packed house. And I think, again, it was very kind of shocking for Jeremiah to sort of be thrust back into the limelight in that way. That was in 2016. Since then, a distributor picked it up and it's been theatrically released now across the country. And it's doing really well. It premiered in L.A., in New York, uh, in April, early April, it premiered in both both coasts, and it has since expanded to many theaters across the country. I think it's in like 25 or 30 major markets, and then you know within each one of those states, you know a variety of different theaters. So it's it's doing well. It you know people seem to respond to food stories nowadays. I mean you know food is and and restaurants and that kind of content seems so um, generally appreciated and accessible now that I think you know people are ready to hear this story. And you know it's it's a it's a privilege to have a documentary in theaters nowadays. You know it doesn't happen that often. You know what I mean? But I'm really pleased with the job that the distributor is doing because they've really gotten the word out and they've gotten the film out and it's gotten a very good response. So. Do you think now that people actually recognize the name Jeremiah Tower and know that he was such an important influence? I do. I, I think certainly the film in, as a theatrical release is getting the word out. Then CNN gets the film at the end of this year for uh, 60 days. So there'll be a broadcast play at the end of this year. And then Netflix gets it for three years. So it'll be on Netflix. And, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, Bourdain's name is attached as an executive producer. So people like you know, Bourdain content. So I think it'll be sought out, you know, that way. It also has a fantastic poster, you know, 
the golden fork that looks like it's giving the finger. I mean, so I think, you know, just based on the poster alone, people will at least kind of dive in and, and take a look at it. And hopefully, you know, once they're in the film, they'll they'll be engaged by it. I mean, he's a fascinating character. You know, what he did and the imprint he made has an impact on the way people eat and, and the dining scene, you know, to this very day. I mean, even Mario Batali, you know, who I know well and, you know, interviewed for the film, said in some way, shape, or form, my experience of stars and Jeremiah as a central figure at that restaurant, you know, influenced, you know, the, the visions for my restaurant, you know, going forward. You know, that idea of like, you know, restaurateur really being, chef restaurateur really being the kind of central guiding figure and that the restaurant itself is is as much a function of your nightly entertainment as, you know, going to a movie or a show or or wherever. I think somebody made that point very clearly too in the film. Like prior to Stars, you know, you would go have dinner and then you'd go see you know, the ballet or the opera or a movie, you know, and you know, stars at its height sort of became the your nightly entertainment as, as well. You could go there and see and be seen and, and and kind of you know be surrounded by the whole kind of cast of characters you know who were ever present. So you know, that was a very unique um, imprint that he made you know on the on the restaurant scene. So what's next for you? I know you've got uh, fermented is currently in the works. Yep, fermented was a film directed by. Um, a guy here at zero point zero, John Sanfrani. Uh, it and it it follows Chef Ed Lee kind of on this journey to explore the whole uh, notion of fermentation and fermented food. It's really incredible. It's very beautifully produced and directed. Um, really fascinating stories and characters in that. So that film is making its way to the Seattle International Film Festival as its premiere. We just premiered another film this year at. Uh, Tribeca Film Festival called Wasted, the story of food waste. Um, again, a very dire subject, but one I think which we, we approached with, um, you know, a very strong directorial and protosorial eye. So two women in the office here, um, Nari Kai and Anna Chai were the co-directors of that film. I was the producer on that film. Um, that got picked up for our distribution as well. So that's going to follow a really interesting and great, um, schedule, you know, past its uh, um, festival premiere life. Um, so excited, really excited about that film. And then we're working on a project right now for CNN that I'm uh, an executive producer on about Detroit, which is where you're based, right? That's correct. Yes. Anthony Bourdain is an executive producer on that. And it's based on a book by David Moranis called Once in a Great City. And it, it focuses on just Detroit. Uh, during the period of 1961 to 1964, when the city was really held up as the great American city. And it explores all the forces and factors that went into that period of the city's life, you know, from politics to the car industry to music to, you know, civil rights. It, 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 it explores sort of this very kind of golden age of Detroit's, um, history. And it's, it's, it's going to be a really powerful piece, I think, particularly up against today's political landscape to see, you know, all the factors that were working, you know, together in concert, you know, to, to create that, that 
moment in, in time of, of like the great American city. It's not going to hit too hard, you know, all the, the kind of factors that, you know, uh, eventually drove some, some, some thing, you know, drove the city uh, apart. It's really this moment in time of, of looking at, uh, Detroit and this very, through this very, very incredible, incredibly powerful, uh, lens. So that's going to be on CNN in, um, the first quarter of 2018. So we're working on that now. We're actually, our first shoot is going out the door, I think in early June. You know, we're going to start our first round of interviews and, and things like that. So I'm really, really excited about that project. And then we have a number of film projects, documentary film projects that are in the works here. They're in various states of undress, um, that I'm excited about and, um, you know, hope to push those projects down the line too. I mean, personally, I, I have one or two projects that I would love to go out and direct again, but right now I'm focusing on a, um, kind of producer role on, on films that we have, you know, in the works here. Well, I'm very excited about the Detroit project. Well, I'm excited about all of them, but it's always interesting to see Detroit kind of under the microscope. And I know this year has a lot of, um, there's a lot of attention because it being the anniversary of the yep. riots. So I know there's a couple um, specials and um, why am I blanking? There's a on... film feature film too. Catherine Bevelo, I think it's, well, I mean, I think what's fascinating about what we're focusing on is, you know, the, the riots obviously, you know, focus on that very unbelievably tension filled period. And we're, we're backing up from that for five, six years, you know, when the city was really, again, just sort of held up as a city city that was like, you know, no pun intended, firing on all pistons. I mean, it was like it had all of these incredible things going for it. People who were, you know, trying to, you know, liberal government that was, you know, a, a working African-American middle class. I mean, you know, there was obviously the tensions there, which we're not going to gloss over, but that's really not the focus of, of our piece. It's like, look, look what happens when these different factions from the economy to the middle class to politicians, you know, to, to industry are all working together in concert. Look at the greatness that can be achieved. It is possible. It was possible then. There wasn't this moment in time where Detroit was like a, the golden city of the United States. And so that's, you know, that's the focus of our, our story. Yeah, people still laugh when I call it the Paris of the Midwest, and I'm like, no, that's really what it was called yeah. at one point. Yes, it's interesting diving into this material to see how that analogy really held up. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I mean, I know you are a very busy person, so I really do appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, too. I'm so happy that you're interested, and um, I, I, I appreciate it more than you know. Just working hard to try to put out you know, good stuff with integrity, you know, that's the road we've decided to walk at 0.0. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the hours of entertainment. I mean, Bowie knife, notwithstanding, <laughs> I mean, I've watched most, if not all of the incarnations of the Bourdain shows that you guys have done over the years. So great stuff as well as some of the other shows. Too. Thank you. Thank you. It, that, that's been the, you know, very long, uh, work in progress that Bourdain, show you know it's like 17 years and counting and it's evolved and iterated and grown and and sort of like it's matured you know to a really kind of beautiful place and that there's still amazing stories to be told on on that series so it keeps going strong because it just it emanates from a really good place 
It's about people and the connectivity between people, you know, around the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.